Hello and what's this week's Sports Zone on Salford City Radio. I'm Rob Parkson and I'm here talking all things sport in Salford. Joining the show this week, as I've all got James Sweetenham. James, looking forward to talking all things sport in Salford and beyond. I most certainly am, Rob. It is an absolute pleasure to be back on the show with you and I can't wait to talk to the people of Salford and discuss all the big sporting news that's been going on. Yes, missed you terrible, James, when you have these odd weeks where you depart into the sunset. Uh, me and Paul are sort of saddened by your absence. Oh, Rob, whether I'm here or there or anywhere, I'm always thinking of you and I'm always <laughs> thinking of the Sports Zone listeners. That's is what it's all about, James. Our listeners are the most important people. They uh, respect us and listen to us talk all things sport in Salford every week. We cover all kinds of different sports and it's great to be involved. Yeah, most certainly, Rob. It's a great thing doing this show, isn't it? There's so much going on in the world of sport and I'm delighted to be back this week. Not so delighted to watch Manchester United lose 3-1 to Arsenal. Uh, 1-1, obviously, and then Ganacho bags what seems to be a winner. It's VAR. It isn't given. It is deemed offside and then we end up losing a complete example of a momentum swing there. What did you make of how it all went down? Yeah, it's one of them games, isn't it? Arsenal away, uh, a game, if you were looking to sort of win a championship, you're competing against one of your main opponents in that title race. You need to take points off them. Unfortunately for Manchester United, uh, weren't able to do that. Like you said, the Ganacho disallowed VAR goal for me, James. It looked like he was onside. I'm not sure when they start drawing red lines and blue lines. It all depends on the camera angle to me. There was one camera angle before the actual one they decide whether he was onside or offside where he looked onside so it's strange but these things are made uh, you know technology is king into they they make the big decisions uh, and unfortunately flagged offside and then like you say Arsenal go up the other end and, and score uh, Declan Rice uh, with the goal you know justifying his 100 million pound uh, you know transfer from West Ham uh, disappointing for Ten Hag's men that they let it go that late in the game, but I suppose titles, even though they're not won in September, James, moments like that make big impressions on that on that title run. They do, because a win over Arsenal, the confidence that would have given us would have been remarkable, and that's mm. all been taken away. And now uh, we've got a break, haven't we, because the international fixtures are coming up. So the whole thing isn't ideal. I mean, where? granted, it's... You know, they're within the rights to be upset that the goal wasn't given. Mm. But is it damning on the Manchester United mentality at the moment that we conceded two goals straight after that? Yeah, it is a, it is a problem that Ten Hag needs to solve. Our away form, especially against the top sides last season, wasn't great. And it seems like we're on that same uh, you know course. And it's a problem, obviously, you, play, you go to these top teams, you play against these top teams. Then you need to find a way to win, and unfortunately, we aren't able to do that at the moment. But I suppose when you take out that last sort of ten minutes, apart from that, it was a good game. Both sides, you know, attacking, both had chances, uh, but unfortunately, Arsenal take the spoils and the points, and that's all that matters really when it comes to the the league title at the end. It's about getting as much, many points as you can and finishing top of the pile. And unfortunately, defeats like that will probably make it the Man United don't finish top of the pile uh, come May. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that's going to take it out of us. We've had a difficult transfer window with many a player not going when we thought they should have done. We've had a couple come in, so let's mm -hmm. have a look at them. Firstly, Johnny Evans coming on loan feels 
pretty mental considering this man left probably United about a decade ago now. Yeah. He's back. Uh, you know, what sort of impact is he going to make? It's a, it's a good question, that, James, because obviously Johnny Evans, you know, one of our, you know, one of our legendary teams had him involved and he's come back. He had a good career at Leicester and he's a, an accomplished Premier League defender. But is he going to take Manchester United to that next level? I'm not sure. Is he the type of player that we can bank on for three, five years down the line? Probably not. Where is this Man United mentality when we're picking up players like him to plug gaps? Are we, are we, you know, looking at short-term success? Are we building something here at Manchester United? That's the big question. He is a good player. He is experienced, but I'm just not quite sure. You know, if he is the guy to take Man United to that next level, what do you think? Yeah, it's nice to see him back. In terms of, you know, he's a bit of a fan favourite, isn't he? And he's yeah. a likable guy. His wife's obviously been working at the club for a very long period of time, so it makes sense if you're going to bring somebody in. However, he's not—he's not really up to the standard right now that we need at Manchester United, and he wasn't up to the standard ten years ago. So. It's difficult to say that he's a good signing, but I wish him all the best. He's, you know, he's a good character. Hopefully, he'll be able to connect with some of these players. He's as experienced as you like, so I'm hoping that he brings something to the locker room in that regard. We've also brought in Amrabat on loan, mm. a signing that we were desperate to make. Are you happy that we've got this over the line, and what can he bring to the club? Yeah, he's a good combative midfielder, uh, likes to get his foot in, likes to play as well. And uh, obviously, look at that midfield with Casemiro and Bruno Fernandes. You know, you need more bodies in that area, don't you? Casemiro has been overrun uh, in the last few weeks. and He will solve that problem, you'd hope. Um, Brings a lot of experience, which is another key thing. And he wants to to come to Manchester United, but on loan, I think, from Fiorentina. You know, I suppose it's an opportunity for him to show Manchester United what he's about. Gives Manchester United the opportunity to look at him and see if he can fit in our pattern. Um, I suppose a good deal for both. But like you say, I suppose it is a loan deal uh, and we'll see how he goes. He has an opportunity now, don't he, to prove himself and to be able to play at the very top level in the Premier League. And I'm sure he's going to take that with both hands. Yeah, he is. He's a signing that we want. He's a signing we've got. And I'm hoping that he makes a pretty big splash at Old Trafford because we need it. On a negative note, Mason Greenwood, we discussed him a couple of weeks back and Manchester United made the decision seemingly to get rid of him. That was very carefully worded, their statement. It looks like they're going to send him out on loan to Getafe. They're going to spend, I think, 8k a week on housing him in a luxurious villa out there Mm. before seemingly bringing him right back to the squad. Firstly, Rob, do you think now that they're statement that he made that they knew full well led a lot of fans to believe that he was going to be gone permanently was it a bit disingenuous for Manchester United well we're forgetting that Mason Greenwood is a 80 million pound player when on top form banging in goals what he did was wrong uh, and he's been punished when he's been punished by the club for it does Manchester United uh, have you know that ability to lose a player for nothing that's worth £80 million. The people in charge of our club will look at him as a, as an asset, not as a, as a person. They want to make sure if he is to move on when his contract ends, they get some money for him. And I think this Getafe loan suits both parties because he goes to Getafe, he, has, he plays football like he wants to, out of the spotlight in the circus of, of English football. If he does manage to, you know, score goals and, and do some good things for Getafe, his value will go up. Uh, people will see him around Europe 
and and see that he's he's still genuine goal scorer and possibly pay, take a chance on him. And then Manchester United might be able to take you know a transfer fee for him and everyone parts waves. Uh, you know, nicely. Everyone gets what they want in a way. He gets to continue to play football, and Man United get a decent transfer fee. And, that, and that's and that's I suppose that's where we are at the moment. Like you said, they did try to, you know, they talked about possibly you know bringing him back into the squad, but the huge media storm that you know happened when that was suggested kind of blew the bridge off. So he had to find a different way to play football, and that's what's happened now. He's moved on to Getafe in Spain to start a new, uh, you know, chapter of his career. And Manchester United will probably get a transfer fee for him down the line. So, do you think that is what Manchester United are aiming for? Do you think that there's no intention of actually bringing him back? This is purely to highlight his skills so they can sell him on for a wage. Yeah, I, I don't think he goes to Getafe and scores thirty goals. Let's say how he even comes back because they just kind of like flirted with the idea. This you know the in the off season and, and like you say the massive media storm woke everyone up again. And then at that point they probably thought no, we we can't do this. And I think it's just about money. And football is is a business in it, James. And you know he is an asset to, to Manchester United, a seventy million, eight million pound asset to Manchester United. So they want to make sure they get top dollar for him. I don't think they'll go for that kind of money. I think it'll be twenty five, twenty. I think he's got about twelve months left on his contract. So they'll want to get rid before you know he can leave on a free. And, and I suppose that helps him as well because he's playing football in Spain, away from you know the spotlight. He can continue to develop as a player uh, and see where his career uh, goes. But yeah, I just think this is Manchester United taking him out on loan. You know, get, go and play some football. Show everyone that you can still play football, and then in twelve months' time, someone will come in and buy you. It's interesting, Rob, and it's going to be incredibly intriguing to see how this all plays out and how the media cover everything. But now, looking at Manchester City, another big victory for them over Fulham, and there were worries at the start of the season for their fans. And Paul, our resident blue on this show, that without De Bruyne, things might fall apart. It, that doesn't seem to have happened. No, hat trick hero. Uh, Erling Haaland on the score sheet again. 5-1 win against Fulham. Continued the 100% start to the season. Even though Pep Guardiola's out with a bad back by all accounts. Shows what Manchester City is all about. They've got players who are world-class in every position. They've got two players to play in every position. They've got a magnificent way of playing football. And it, that juggernaut just rolls on. Done it. Manchester City just know how to win, and they are the standard bearers of English football. Everyone has to compete with Manchester City. The pressure comes when Manchester City come against another top team like a like a United or a Liverpool or an Arsenal. How they function under that kind of pressure, but as we can see, destroyed Fulham at home, Ireland on top form. You know the whole of the Premier League is probably thinking, oh, what happens now because. When the uh, when the blue touch paper is uh, is lit, uh, Man City go, and that's what's happened now. It most certainly is, and we're all looking forward to seeing how this plays out. I think Manchester City at the moment are going to be a very tough side to beat. England are going to be playing on Saturday, playing Ukraine, a very big fixture. How do you see this one going? Obviously, the European Championships upcoming now. We we obviously need to qualify and get a place in that. Yeah, we seem to play Ukraine every week. England, you know, have you noticed yeah, that? We do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the things, Rob. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, you know one of them that I suppose 
Gareth Southgate will be will be looking for a, a good performance. Um, he's got players who we want to integrate in his in his team uh, for you know Europe Championships, World Cups to come, uh, and yeah, it'd be a difficult game. Uh, they're a good team, Ukraine. Uh, they've got you know the the whole you know war with Russia going on in the background. That's another sort of level in it behind what what they're achieving on the football pitch. So. I think it's important, obviously, Gareth Southgate's men remain focused, uh, keep the, the job in hand at the forefront of the mind and get the result when they play him next week. Yeah, I mean, England, the state they're in right now, a lot of pressure on them, obviously. We want that big trophy. Hmm. Do you think there's even more pressure on these players based on how well the Lionesses just did? Yeah, it could it could be a point, James, because obviously a lot of people, you know, will look at what the Lionesses achieved uh, in a major tournament, getting to the final and losing to Spain, and, and obviously the England team, similar circumstances, you know, went to the final, lost to to Italy, and it's I suppose it's what you can do. Can we do better? And a lot of you know when the women play, they talk about how their attitude is and they're not rolling around on the floor. I think it's a bit of a myth, really, because, you know, football is football. They do talk about men's football, lots of diving around, lots of pretending to be injured. But that happens well as well in the ladies' game. I remember the Spanish uh, against England, that last sort of 20 minutes, just trying to disrupt the game totally. Um, and that's all about winning. It's all about gaining an advantage and getting your team over the line, which, which is what Spain did. So it is uh, an interesting comparison but there will be people saying well the ladies got to a final you know they, they, they're showing us how you know great football is how it's engaging with 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 women all around the all around the world and all around our country and it's up to the men now to step up uh, to the mark uh, and show the same kind of responsibilities the same kind of attitude when playing uh, to inspire the next generation and, that, and they're hoping that they'll be able to do that under Gareth Southgate he's, he's led that England team Extraordinarily, you know, since he since he came into the post, um, and you're just hoping that success will continue. But it's going to be tough, like you say. Teams know what England are all about. England don't really have a massive pool of players in the Premier League. I think something like 28 percent of of people who play in the Premier League are eligible to play for England, which isn't a great amount of people that Gareth Southgate has to pick from uh, at the very top level. Um, so it will be interesting to see what happens in the next uh, few sort of years to come when it comes to developing You know, these kids in the academies and, and how they're going to develop. Because it can all go so, so far when you're in an academy. You need to be playing, playing at the top level to reach you know world-class stages so uh yeah it's interesting to see how they, they go through these big teams and if they do let them go where they go and if they let them stay how they break into that top team to develop as players and looking at that group obviously ukraine in second at the moment so you'd say they're perhaps our greatest rivals in the group but italy are in there as well currently in third place and obviously they beat us in the final of the European Championships, a devastating penalty shootout, I think, for all of us. But then they didn't make the World Cup, and now it's looking possible that they might not qualify for the European Championships. What's going on with Italy at the moment? It's a strange thing. Obviously, like you say, you know, missing out on major tournaments, 
Italy don't do that very often, has to be said. Um, they are a footballing nation. The whole of Italy will be hurting the fact they didn't make it to the last major tournament. If they don't qualify again, there's going to be serious ramifications. They'll have to probably have a massive inquiry about it. But they are still classed as one of the greatest team, greatest countries, football countries in the world. Um, I generate, you know, great players. It seems like they just haven't got that that team together to be able to qualify. And I suppose. When you when you are the likes of England and, and Italy, you have a process where you go into these qualifiers and you know the games you have to win. But unfortunately for Italy, it seems like they've dropped off the edge there and are dropping points as they go along. So that's probably why they're failing to qualify. And until they stop the rot and start winning games which they should win, and also nicking games where they shouldn't, they'll continue to miss out on the big uh, big tournaments for every four years or so. Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? How things come and go in Italy, aside that aren't doing as well as they, you know, are threatened to do in recent years. You're hoping with England now, a team who've been pretty consistently operating yeah. at a high level. Eventually, this has got to click. You'd imagine, and eventually, we've got to get this over the line. Obviously, the last three major tournaments done very well in all of them. Do you think, though, anything other than the win at this stage? we're in a position where Gareth could lose his job. Is there too much of an expectation almost that if you're in these major tournaments, you've got to be 31 of the greatest teams on the planet. And especially like if it's the world championships, so look at the teams you have to get through. Mm. So is it almost, he's in a position where unless it's the absolute best, he's going to be under scrutiny. Yeah. I think a lot of time, you know, English football fans will look at the English football team and think, right, where do we expect you to, to, to go? You think quarterfinal, semi-final, and if we get, if you get, you know, look at the green, we'll get to the final. Mostly through my England uh, football watching career, we'll call it, we always seem to struggle to get through the group stages and then drop out kind of like second round. But this team under Gareth Southgate has taken the English football to the next level. But I think it's not just Gareth Southgate. I think it's the investment in football that the government and the FA have done over the last sort of 10 years that have brought level uh, of players up. And that is why we're able to compete at the very top and that's why we're reaching semi-finals that's why we're reaching finals of major tournaments now we're not banging dropping out in the sort of second round with the you know you know historic defeats or you know games like that where you think we should have won we're actually winning games now where Italy maybe have gone off the other end they were a team that historically won 1-0 so sort of played ugly but managed to get through to a to major tournament, sort of semi-final, final. And we never were there, but maybe just swapped round now. And we're the team that are able to get to these major tournaments. Is that pressure on Gareth Southgate? Probably. Because I suppose if you're getting to semi-finals, finals regular, and you don't get to a semi-final, questions start to be asked. But historically, if you look back through the ages, England are very rarely knocking on the door when it comes to semi-final football, aren't we? So to get to a semi-final is a great achievement, but we're in a different world now where success drives uh, the agenda. And if we don't win a tournament or we don't get to a semi-final, fingers will get pointed at Gareth Southgate. And it depends on you know how, how he feels about it, because being an England manager, that's a massive amount of pressure on anybody. You know, a whole of the media looking at you, uh, general public looking at you, who you pick, who you talk to, what you do. And it's it's 
suppose it's massive pressure on his shoulders. So does he feel after, you know, how many years he's been in charge of England that his job is done? I'm, I'm happy just to, to go back to the sidelines. Don't forget Gareth Southgate came through the, the England structure, didn't he? You know, with the 21s and he's a, he's part of the firm. He's part of the, the, the FA, the FA's development program. So is, is there anyone else waiting in the wings to take his place? I'm not quite sure. No, I mean, obviously there's the the Lionesses manager who apparently is being groomed to take over this role. We're hoping, I think, that Gareth Southgate can finally get us across the line before he goes. Hmm. Now, looking over to our local side, a mixed week for Salford City, a loss to Morecambe, but a very dramatic penalty shootout winning against Leeds 9-8, and it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, obviously Salford City against Leeds in the EFL Cup, you know, what an occasion uh, for, for Salford to, to win uh, 9-8 there. We talked about, you know, Salford's great cup runs of, of the you know last few years. And I suppose this victory kind of like puts the icing on the cake when it comes to things like that. You're hoping that they'll continue that form and take that form into the league uh, run. Um, but yeah, happy days. Everyone's, everyone likes it when, when we, you know, a small team takes a, takes a big team out. Leeds United just come out of the Premier League, a massive scalp, the Lancashire Yorkshire rivalry uh, in a, in an in a EFL a cup tie uh, and so forth to come, you know, come out, the, the other end, the victor, uh, only helps uh, you know the city and the team. Yeah, it most certainly does. Things are building very nicely for Salford at the moment. Obviously, a tough game coming up against Bolton in the Football League trophy. A derby, so hopefully it brings the best out of Salford. Mm, yeah, Bolton in good form as well, which is a concern, would be a concern for Salford, but confident. Oh, after beating Leeds in the, in the last game, you know they'll be looking to to take over another, you know, big club. Bolton Wanderers, yeah, they've not been in the Premier League, you know, for a, for a few years, but they still are a, a big name in in football, isn't it? So if they can manage to to get a result away from home at Bolton, will be a big shot in the arm um, for the Amis. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out, I suppose. And a game on Saturday against Walsall, a team slightly ahead of us in the table in 14th. Tough gig for us. Yeah, it's going to be tough to see what happens there, uh, James. Obviously, after this week's defeat, uh, they'll need to bounce back there. But like you say, it's football is a funny old, funny old game, isn't it? You know, you're up one minute and down the next, so you're hoping they can find a, you know, a, a way to win and uh, get them uh, engines going uh, for the next game. And obviously, we were a lot better last year, seemingly, over the course of the season. This year, we've not opened up brilliantly. Do you think that's a sign of things to come, or do you still think we can pull this back and push for a playoff place? No, I think the play. I think the playoff, you know, spot is open uh, for Salford. I think, like you say, you're playing these teams, and, and they know, you know, what Salford is about after last year's sort of playoff run. Salford need to find form they need to find a way to win if if they can sort of string a few wins together we know how you know the ef the uh the league is they're, they're all very tight you win a couple of games you're in the you're in the top two you lose a couple of games you, you're down near the bottom again so it's about stringing two three four wins together and then you get momentum against other teams and uh especially like i say in that division anything can happen and uh, you just open that we can find um a few wins and then come february march time we're in uh, the hunt for a playoff spot and even better uh, promotion uh, and then we'll see where we are 
Most certainly, Rob. I mean, the position Salford are in now is an interesting one because it's not exactly where we want to be, but there are glimmers that we can turn this around, aren't there? I mean, that victory against Leeds, a penalty shootout, one where you're going in as an underdog, you're hoping that that inspires us to do better things throughout the season. Yeah, and that's the important thing, James, is about being able to be remain focused when results aren't going your way. And that's the important thing when it comes to Salford. You've got to, you've got to make sure that there will be big games to come in the next weeks and months to come where they've got to win. And if they drop points and, and they struggle and they get injuries, that's when it starts to bite. But they've got owners there who are able to invest in the structure and in the team. And you're just hoping that if a storm does brew and they get injuries and, they and lose a bit of form, that they can invest at the right time to take Salford to that next level. So and that's all the football chat. We're joined by Paul Whiteside from The Devil of Detail. Paul, looking forward to talking all things sport and Salford and beyond. Yes, yeah, certainly am. Good evening, guys. I hope you're both okay. Yeah, looking forward to it as ever. I'm sure we've, it's another big show. There's been loads going on this weekend, hasn't there? So, uh, yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, lots to go out. We're going to be talking boxing now, James, aren't we? Yeah, we most certainly are, Rob. And there was an absolutely massive fight on Saturday night. Chris Eubank Jr. and Liam Smith settling their grudge once and for all. Going into this one, there were so many questions. Was Eubank finished? Was his punch resistance gone? Was Liam Smith just that little bit too crafty, that little bit too technical call for him? Chris Eubank Jr. answered all the doubters, putting in an absolutely spectacular performance. There's so much to break down from this one. But first things first, just give me your overall breakdown of the fight. Very surprised, James, to be honest with you. Um, I was a bit, well, surprised, probably the wrong word, probably shocked, really, at Liam Smith. Not saying he's awful, but just the way he boxed. We know he boxes with a high guard. And he's very, very defensive. But, you know, he didn't really come off that front foot at all. He, I mean, he hardly threw anything. I mean, Eubank didn't really have anything to deal with. And I wasn't expecting that at all. I was expecting both fighters to come out and fight fire with fire. That's what we got promised in the press conferences and the interviews and all the all the hype and the build-up. And it, for me, it was very, very one-sided. Um, he looked so vulnerable at times, uh, Smith. And credit to, to Eubank, he, he got his game game plan spot on, really caught him with a lot of shots. I mean, Smith covered a lot of the shots, but he was beaten, you know, well beaten on the night, and, and I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah, I don't think anybody was expecting Eubank Jr. to perform as well as he did. Obviously, in the aftermath, Liam Smith has made his excuses that there was a weight-cutting issue that he'd put on 40 pounds before this due to an injury that... There were so many different things that had gone wrong. Do you buy into any of his excuses or do you feel like he was just beaten by the better man? Well, I think there's, I think in any sport, there's, there's always... Oh, I, I don't like to call them excuses. I think reasons for me, maybe maybe some are excuses, but a lot of it is reasons why, why things went wrong. And there'll always be things like that in sport. But I think sometimes you, you look better if you hold your hands up and keep those excuses and those reasons if you like, in-house between you and your, your, your team rather than coming out in public. Because when you do that, people just start, sort of think you're moaning and finding excuses. So it, it's not the sort of thing I'd have said at the press conference. If it had been me, I'd have just said, well, done. he was better than me on the night because he was. Um, there's always going to be injuries. and You're a sportsman. You, you're going to carry niggles and knocks and, and things like, you know, boxing is a brutal sport. I mean, how many injuries will a boxer pick up? You know, he's always going to have something. You know, you look at the camps, what they go through and the... You know the the training and the sparring and, and that it's very very tough. So 
no fight is going to go into a fight absolutely 100% perfect. There'll always be something that they've picked up. So, so no, I don't buy into that, really. I think it's, 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 it's poor to come out and say that. But, you know, even if he had to do a big weight cut, it, to me, I think I said it to you on the night, he looked like he'd aged about five years in the sort of nine months or whatever it was, eight months since the last fight. And I don't know whether that was something to do with his injury or not, but I think you've got to give Eubank an awful lot of credit. I think he completely improved. Um, I mean, we we said on the night, the first fight was going the same way as that one until Smith got that punch off. But he didn't get any punches off in that fight, really. He didn't throw anything. So it, it was a strange one. And Would they have a third fight? I, I don't know. If you look at a third fight right now, Paul, is that something you'd be interested in? Or do you think this was decisive enough for us not to need to go down this road again? Well, to be fair to Liam Smith, you, you could say that his stoppage was probably just as good as, as Eubanks, really, wasn't it? It was probably just as spectacular, if you like, wasn't it? They were both decent stoppages. So, um, you know, you say it's 1-1 now, wouldn't you, really? You can't really say that Eubanks the Miles better boxer because cause Smith won the first one. So, at one apiece... You know, you, you you're always looking to settle it once and for all, aren't you? With a third third time lucky sort of thing, you know, one at, uh, best of three, if you like. So uh, I don't know whether Eubank will go down that road though, because I think he was calling like Golovkin out last night. He was calling other people out. I think he, he realizes that his career now is he's coming to the you know towards the back end of it, isn't it, with his age and whatever. So he's not going to go on forever. So if he goes another fight with Liam Smith, that's another six, eight, nine months of his career gone because you've got the preparation for that. So he probably thinks if I want to win a world title, I've got to go a different way. So you can't blame him for that. As for Liam Smith, I think Liam's about 35, 36 year old now. Where does he go from here? What, what does he have to offer the sport? You know, he's been a world champion. He's been in with some of the best. Does he keep going or does he seek another route? It'll be interesting to see where both fighters go. It most certainly will be, Paul. Of the names he mentioned, Gennady Golovkin, Conor Ben, Kel Brook, is there one of them in particular that you'd like to see more than the others? Well, I think the obvious one's the Conor Ben fight. I think, you know, that that's that's history, isn't it, between the two families. Um, it was hyped up last time, and I think you, you, you'd sell a, a big stadium for that. I think you would anyway. With a good card there, I think you'd, you'd feel... I might be being a bit ambitious here, but I think you could do somewhere like Wembley for something like that. I think people would love that if you had a good support on as well. So, or, or a big arena, definitely. So, um, yeah, I think that's the fight people want to see. I think there'll be fireworks there. You've got all that history there. You can imagine the build-up to that. You know, the gloves are off and all those sort of things on, on Sky Television were great for this uh, for this um, two fights that we've had up to now. But the Conor Ben factor, I think there's... There's an even more of a rivalry there, isn't there? Uh, you know, Ben doesn't like Eubank, so um, and and vice versa. So, I think that's the one that the British public would want to see. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's an incredibly big fight, even bigger now, rightly or wrongly, due to the whole drug scandal. So, what do we do, Paul? Do we make this fight because it's massive, everybody wants to see it, and now most people seemingly are on Team Eubank and. You know, it is one that would probably start at Wembley Stadium at this point. But on the other side of the coin, Conor Ben still isn't cleared. He's still tested positive for performing hence and substances. So, should we go ahead with this fight? Um, well, it's a difficult one because he's never actually 
got his license back with the British Bo- Boxing Board of Control, has he? I don't know whether he can fight in this. Can he? You know, you might be able to put me right here. Can he fight in this country under under the B, the British Boxing Board of Control, or is he? I mean, there's no there's questions of that bad and things like that. I'm not really well up on all the politics, but you might be able to answer that question for. Yeah, to my understanding, right now, he's allowed legally to fight in the states. He's allowed to fight in the Middle East. He can't yet fight in the UK, although Hearn is trying to push that around, perhaps as early as September. Yeah, so that 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 have become a stumbling block, but that's when you you start thinking, are uh, the promoters going to look at abroad? You know, somewhere like um, yeah, Dubai or somewhere like that, the UAE or something, where these big fights have been touted before. Do they take it to America? Um, I'm not so sure whether the American public. I don't know the. They're funny, aren't the American public about British fighters and that? Would they want to see two British fighters over there, or or, or does Eubank go another way? I mean, he doesn't owe Conor Ben anything, so um, will he go another way? I mean, I'm, I'm saying that's the fight the British public wants. So you'd have to ask Chris Eubank Jr. what fight he wants. He he seemed really keen on Triple G, didn't he? Um, I mean, I don't know how much legs are in that fight, but there's some massive fights out there for him. It just depends which road him and his team want to go down. And then looking at the undercard, some big fights there. Adam Azim, firstly, picking up another win, a flashy display. And we were having a conversation at the Smith Eubank fight about how we're lacking in stars right now in British boxing. We've had this era of the, the Chris Eubank Juniors, the Liam Smiths, the James DeGales, the George Groves, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, Anthony Crawler, Ricky Burns, all these big fighters that can start venues. And we were thinking, who's going to be doing this in five years' time? Is Adam Azim one of the prospects that could potentially do that? Missed a few more out there, Carl France, George Groves. There's been loads, hasn't there? Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, yeah, he's, he's a very flashy boxer. and You know, credit to his opponent um, on Saturday night. I thought he, he, was, he was really, really good. I think he's the best fighter that he's fought. And that was a big step up. You know, he was good. He was durable. He was quick. And when the, the judges gave the scorecards out, I thought they were quite wide, those scores, really. I mean... I thought he deserved a couple of rounds the the lad he fought, but uh, but no, I think Azim's got the potential, hasn't he? He's very flashy. He's got such quick hands. He's he's a, he technically is a very very good boxer. So you know, um, yeah, the public can take to him. He, he could he could go uh, go all the way. There's no doubt about that. But I do get what you're saying about the the sort. Of, I think you know from like sort of the mid two thousands to maybe twenty little late. He's had the decades are different now, aren't they? But I say from the mid 2000s, like 2019, 2020, uh, before COVID, we did have some some tremendous champions, some tremendous fight nights, you know, selling out stadiums, Wembley and things like that. But you know, it does seem to be uh, to be sort of peaking off at the moment, doesn't it? We don't seem to have that that crop of uh, of youngsters coming through, do we? So uh, you know, we can add Luke Campbell to that list as well of, of names we mentioned before. So, um, so yeah, I, I I don't know where the next stars are coming from, but I think you've got you've got to say Azim is a, is a star at the moment. I think he's made a really good start to his career. How much of that, what you've just explained there, is down to Eddie Hearn leaving Sky Sports and going to the zone? Oh, I think I think that's a bit been a big thing, that James. To be honest with you, I mean, the zone. It's for for, for all it is, it, it's not. I don't think it's as popular as sort of Sky Sports. Sky Sports is in the majority of people's houses, isn't it? And it's more, I suppose it's more watched by lay people, the general public who are not sort of boxing fanatics. You know, the casual boxing fan will watch Sky Sports, won't they? Um, so 
then they get to hear about boxing more. And I'll give you a prime example. You go on maybe BBC website, Sky website today. You probably won't be able to find out how Mark Efron went on with um, Jack Cullen. <laughs> you won't be able to find out how Lyndon Arthur went on on Friday night because he doesn't tell you. Uh, these these sort of websites will only tell you the, the big stories and a lot of boxing goes under the radar. There'll be shows on every Friday, Saturday, but you don't always get to find them out unless you are that purist who's looking for it. So, But with Sky, yeah, I think Eddie Hearn was a match made in heaven for Sky, wasn't it, for a, for a period of time and... It, it, that that marriage seemed to, to fade away and he's gone a different way but um, yeah Sky doesn't seem to have the clout it once had in, in boxing which is a shame yeah it, it definitely is and looking at the rest of the bill you mentioned Mark Heffron there done in inside three rounds by Jack Cullen a pretty devastating finish where does Cullen go from here and where does Heffron go is this the end of the road for him well I listened to an interview with his uh, manager, Kevin Murray, on, on Sunday morning, and, and Kevin made some good points and some surprising points, really. He said that, you know, Mark wasn't going to defend the British title, you know, after this fight anyway, and he was going to move on into different routes, maybe European and things like that. So it, it doesn't look like Mark's going to finish. It looks like he's hungry to go. And uh, I think if you look at the fight, it was, it was a shootout. And, you know, Mark caught Jack with a couple of good shots himself. And I think Mark will be disappointed because... He sort of got sucked in, really, and I think that was the game plan from Jack Cullen. I'm sure he, I heard him mention in an interview a couple of weeks ago that Mark does wade in, which he does sometimes, and he'll pick him off when he makes a mistake, and that's exactly what he did. If you watch Heffron, he goes in with a few big swings and just gets caught off balance a couple of times, and that's when Jack Cullen catches him with that sweet shot. And I think if you watch it there, Mark gets up quite early, really, where he probably should have stayed down and took an eight count, but he jumps straight up. And I don't think his body was quite ready. And that's when he, he sort of collapsed back down to the floor. So perhaps, you know, he's never been down in his career before. And I think he panicked a bit. And, uh, you know, perhaps a, a bit of, um, you know, just a bit more boxing knowledge there, just staying down a bit more. But uh, but no, I, th- I think both of them can go again. Jack Cullen's a very talented man. If you look at his CV, he's got a really good CV in the sport. He's been in with some really good guys, had some really tough fights. And, uh, you know, he can do a bit as well. He's, he's very tall for the weight. At a, a super middle, so I think both of them have still got got legs in them. I, I think they're very similar age. I think Mark's just slightly older, but I think there's there's big fights in both, and they're both ent- entertainers. And another blowout, Florian Mark, who absolutely demolishing Dylan Moran. Yeah, yeah, these two um, weren't best of friends at the at, in the fight week, were they? At the way, and there was a lot of words exchanged between the two. Of them. I didn't expect it to go as quick as it did, but I think, you know, Florian Marku, he needs the respect because he's got an awful lot of power for that sort of weight, you know, that he's at. And um, it was one of those fights where he just started on the front foot and, and his opponent just couldn't get, he just couldn't get back to him, could he? he perhaps he should have grabbed hold a bit more than what he did. He tried to fight fire with fire and that doesn't always work, does it? Sometimes you've got to just grab hold, take a knee, whatever you've got to do. And he didn't. He tried to stand up there and um, and just got tagged. Yeah, he did. Not ideal stuff for him. And the last big fight on the bill, Dave Allen versus Fraser Clark. Four years out of action for the White Rhino, aside from a brief return to action in Malta last year. He had his moments. He landed a couple of right hands, all in all outboxed by Fraser Clark. The low blows played their part. Dave hit with two. Fraser Clark ultimately with two points removed from his score total. In the end, Dave pulled out with a perforated eardrum. 
What do you make of this whole thing? I mean, so far it was clear Fraser Clark is flattering to deceive, and they delivered quite a controversial post-fight interview. The whole thing seems all over the place. And also, you know, what does Dave Allen do now? It's a tough one for Dave Allen, to be honest with you. I mean, I know he did retire, didn't he? Because he'd been done over-inspiring a few times and wasn't feeling so good and things like that. His head was all over the place. So he needs to take a long, hard look now. He's had some big defeats, hasn't he, in his career. You know, you think back to the David Price defeat, big knockouts, and uh, you've got to watch your body, haven't you? So I think he needs to seriously think about things. Fraser Clark, I'm not too sure. Like you said, he flatters to deceive, doesn't he? I mean, he was, he was lucky he didn't get disqualified in that fight because he did two... Two, the, the two points he got taken off and I think the round after he got done for a low blow but the referee didn't take a point off for that so he was lucky really to, to get through that but uh, you know he did look vulnerable at times with um, Dave Allen's as you call it Donkey Kong punch <laughs> which which is a very dangerous punch by the way but you know Fraser Clark he showed signs you know if he can get that body shot right it's, it's a real stinging body shot that but you know, just just needs to lift it up a bit, I think. But Dave Allen's a funny shape, isn't he? He's a hard guy to it as well. So uh, it was it was one of those. It was a bit of a controversial one that. But you know, with credit to Fraser, he got through it. He did get through it. He's got the win, and now he's looking on to pastures new. With Dave Allen, who's a huge opportunity been missed because he's an extremely likable character, somebody people really get behind. But for the bulk of his career, he's been going in with. Dillian White, Lewis Ortiz, Fraser Clark, people who were just too many levels above him to beat them. Had he been pushed towards area titles, English titles, could we be looking at a very different career trajectory right now for Dave Allen? Yeah, well, yeah I think you're right. Yeah, I think you, you look at um, John McDermott, people like that, Sam Sexton, who, who Dorian Darts, those sort of guys who, who've been at heavyweight. And yeah, they, they've come up in big fights against the likes of Anthony Joshua, but. They've been around that that sort of level and, and probably enjoyed better careers really and um, than what Dave Allen has done. So you know, it just depends how, how your team take you sometimes, doesn't it? But um, I, I think he's had real potential, Dave Allen. He's not really fulfilled it. I think he could have took an opportunity there against Fraser Clark. You know, I think if he'd have gone for it from from the word go, he he could have um, upset the apple cart there because you know Fraser did look vulnerable at times in that fight. But I suppose it's one of those where we're never going to know. No, most certainly not. It's going to be interesting to see where Fraser goes. So many big opportunities out there for him. And in hindsight now, there was a lot of controversy when he pulled out of the Fabio Wardley purse, but or more aptly, the boxer pulled him out. Was that the right decision looking at? Would he have won that fight? Oh, I don't know. I think Wardley carries a lot of power, doesn't he? Um, I think he's a dangerous fighter as well. And, you know, if you're someone like Fraser Clark. Do you want to get in with him and risk it early doors? I mean, that'd have been a big, a big win for him and a big statement win. But I don't know. Does it? From where I'm sat, his team look like they want to avoid that fight at the moment. But but you can't avoid people forever, James. Can you? I mean, if you want to win titles and that, you eventually have got to get in with 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 people who are of a level um, to find out where you're at. So um, he's going to get tested. There's no doubt about that as he goes up through the levels. And you know, he's. Um, He's well in with Sky Sports and the television people, so big facts are going to come for him, and it's how, about how he handles them. Most certainly is, Paul. Thank you for joining me, as ever, and now I'm going to throw it over to Mr. Rob Parkinson, 
to talk rugby league. Yeah, we're going to start with some sad news. A Salford great David Watkins has passed away, uh, Paul. Our thoughts are with his friends and family at this time. Uh, an iconic figure uh, in rugby league and in rugby union uh, and a stalwart uh, in that Salford side, uh, that successful Salford side of the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, a sad day uh, for everybody. Yeah, big top top player for Salford, top goal kicker, top place kicker. Um, I don't think he really made it a standoff at Salford. He, he made the move to centre and he was a revelation there, wasn't he? And uh, that's where he spent the bulk of his career. So, won two championships as well. And, you know, a great player in both codes, really. So, um, yeah, very, very sad news. I, I did know that he'd, he'd been poorly for quite a while, hadn't he, um, David Watkins? So, um, so, yeah, it's very, very sad because we've lost three top, top players, haven't we, in the last uh, month or two, you know, Eric Prescott going and, and Mike Coomer passing on as well, and now David Watkins, so it's a, it's a sad time with these, these gentlemen growing older, and uh, no, that was sad news, that. Yeah, very, very sad. Like I said, our thoughts with his friends and family at this time. Looking at the result uh, this week for Salford, they faced Wigan away from home on Friday night and went down to defeat 26 points to 8. Talk us through it. Yeah. Very poor, Rob. I thought very disappointing result. Um, I thought it was a poor performance. I think Wigan, they were going in for that top spot, weren't they? After a fantastic win over in in, in France, and you no, know, Salford were in the game in the first half, four points apiece, and even at eight four. But for me, it was the three minutes or so before half time we sort of imploded there. We conceded a real soft try on the uh, on the right edge. Um, I can't remember who scored. That was it. Who scored on that right edge? Uh, Wardle, sorry, Jake Wardle yeah. scored. Um, and then obviously the. The Hail Mary kick from Mark Snead, what he was doing there, I don't know. Just just going at half-time at 14-4, you banged the kick in the air there. We did the same thing last season with, with Morgan Escudet taking a stupid drop goal. And he did it a few times on, on Friday night, you know, kicking to you know straight to Jai Field. And, and he can't afford to give Jai Field the ball and, and let him run the ball back. He's got that much pace and there's a gap there. He finds it. So so I thought that was the suicidal, really, from Salford. And 20 points to four at the break. The game was done, really, in uh, the second half. We, we didn't really have much. I thought Wigan went through the motions, really, in that second half. Had us at arm's length. And, you know, Ken Seal scored a good try, but it was a night to forget, really. Wigan were uh, head and shoulders above Salford. and We looked tired. We looked a bit jaded. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a worry now going into Warrington because the Warrington game is, is a real shootout. We lose that game and, and we're not going to make the playoffs. Yeah, it was that 10 minutes, like you say, just for half time for me. When we do say we start to gas, we usually mean physically. But I thought against Wigan, that 10 minutes, we just lost concentration. We just lost sort of where we were in the game, you know, psychologically. And Wigan just took advantage of that. They are playoff kings. They've been there. They've done it every season. They are involved in this sort of playoff situation. And we're still le learning how to deal with that. And I thought it was a lesson for Paul Rowley's boys on Friday when the uh, the pressure cranks up you've got to match it and I think in that last sort of 10 minutes that first half we just fell below the standard where we need to be if we want to be in the playoffs Yeah they've got some classy players Wigan as well you look at Field and and, uh, and, and French they, they've, they've got an awful lot of pace in that team and that's probably something what's over a lacking a bit at the moment and it's, you know I, I think we're not blessed with, with Tremendous pace, and perhaps that's something Paul Rowley will be looking at to, to put right for next season. But 
No, it was it was a tough one because you look at the league table. Oh, we've got Catalans who who've dropped off top spot, but look who's right behind them. Wigan and St. Helens, you know, they're coming good at the business end of the season. Aren't those two are looking really strong. They don't seem to have many injuries at all, and you know. But having said that, Salford went there with a strong side. It was I think it was three weeks running where we named an unchanged team, barring the 18th man that swapped over. So, you know, I, I thought we should have done better than that really, but we had a bit of disruption. We lost Mark Sneed after about 11-12 minutes in the game. Chris Atkin had to come on, so that probably had to, to change things around. But then Mark Sneed did come back on, which was which was good. But you know, it was a lot of effort and endeavour, as there always is. But we, we just weren't good enough, to be honest, Rob. And, um, you know, if we do get in the playoffs, I think it's going to be tough because there's some, there's some good sides in there. And um, we don't look as good as we did this time last season, it's uh, sad to say. Yeah, so... Salford are currently seventh in the Super League. Paul, at the beginning of the season, would you have took seventh at that point if we had a, if we had a crystal ball and said we'll be fighting for the uh, playoffs? We're going to narrowly miss out. We're going to finish seventh. Would you have took that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. It's a failure, isn't it? No. No, I thought we had the squad good enough to make the playoffs. So obviously, seventh is is no good, really. I mean, you finish seventh, you might as well finish tenth, aren't you, or eleventh? Mm. So. Everybody wants to do well, don't they? So, um, so no, I, I don't want it to finish in the playoffs and I'd be disappointed if we don't. But if we don't, there's nothing you can do about it. You've got to move on and, and look to next year, haven't you? Um, but no, it would be disappointed if we don't make it. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, it's one of those, if you make the playoffs, you want to make a mark in them, don't you? And if you finish in the top six, you want to get to Old Trafford. There's no point in finishing the playoffs say, oh, we got in the playoffs. Nice one. If you finish in the playoffs, you want it to be challenged. You don't need to win that trophy. Otherwise, there's no point in being in it. So, uh, at the moment, do I think we're good enough to win the grand final? No, I, I don't think we're strong enough, to be honest with you, Rob. Looking at Friday night and looking at the last few months, I think we've we fell a bit short, haven't we, for one reason or another. Um, I thought our discipline was, was poor on Friday again and a bit of decision-making and things like that. There does look like there's something missing at the moment. and I know we've not got the biggest squad in the world and, and things like that. So, uh, But I think we've just got to do our best now all these next three games. And, and if we can get into that playoffs and, and have a crack at somebody, then then we've just got to go for it, haven't we? It's knockout rugby league, but uh, but no, it'd be disappointing to finish seventh. That's that's my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I think to change people's perceptions, like you said, we've got to finish in a playoff spot. Last season, playoff semi finalists. This season, if we don't fail to make the playoffs, people outside the Salford Devils bubble will think, oh, last season was just a one We need to be consistent. We need to consistently stay in the playoffs year in year out. And competing and not just like you say crawl into a, a playoff situation we need to be running full strength on, onto it so it's going to be difficult to see how we can uh, get in there if the Warrington game ends up in defeat for Salford but we're confident that Paul Rowley's men can find another gear uh, with Warrington just around the corner Yeah, yeah there's, there's two sides to that coin really I mean we say that and, and, and we say we're disappointed. And I've just said I'm disappointed there, but perhaps I'm doing Salford a disservice, and I, and I probably am, because, you know, they, they, they're our club, aren't they? And, and we care about them very much, but we, we're not, we've not got the biggest budget in the world. Uh, we don't get the biggest crowds in the world. We, I'm not saying we're punching above our weight, but it's difficult for us to challenge teams like Wigan and St. Helens, you know, with, it, with the, the resources they've got. So, Perhaps we are doing okay. And I think the, the pride thing will be is six just sounds better than seven to me because you actually finished in the top six. Mm. And, and like you said, if you're a consistent top six team, 
does that attract other players from you know from other clubs who want to come and sign for us, better players as well? So, you know, if you can say, yeah, we're a consistently good club, a, a top six club, a challenge, a team that's challenging rather than a team that's just a make-weight, you know, and also ran. So, uh, yeah, it's difficult sometimes, isn't it? Because expectations get, you know, lifted, don't they, when you have a good season like we did last season. We were 18 minutes away from a grand final and came mightily, mightily close, didn't we? But for one reason or another, this season's just not caught fire like last season did. And, you know, perhaps people are just disappointed from that. But, no, we're not, we're not, we've not been, been awful this season. I think we've done OK, but... Um, it would be nice to get in that six. Yep. Looking at the other results in Super League this week, Hull Kingston Rovers beat Catalan 26 points to 18. Wigan beat us 26-8. Leeds won away at Hull 28 points to 12. Uh, they're obviously Leeds trying to chase that playoff uh, pack. Yeah, they certainly are. And it's going to be interesting now. I think it'll be difficult for Leeds because they're just behind us, aren't they? And I think it's going to be difficult for us to get in. We've got two matches now against Warrington and Hawkins and Rovers, which are a shootout for the for the, for the the playoffs, really, aren't they? I mean, you lose to Warrington. I don't think we're mathematically done, but we more or less are, aren't we? But if we can beat Warrington, you've then got Hawkins and Rovers. Hawkins and Rovers win this weekend. They're going to be really hard to catch because they've got a, a better points difference than us. So we've just got to win these two matches and then probably have to beat Catalans as well. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting. But for Leeds and some of those other clubs outside, I think Huddersfield, Hull, I think they're done now. I don't think they can they can get there now. You know, unless there's some sort of miracle. But uh, but yeah, Leeds have they've had another disappointing season really, haven't they? You know, considering the signings they made and, and what have you. So they've been up and down. They've had some big wins as well away from home. Mm. Uh, Warrington hammered Castleford. Uh, Lee beat Huddersfield over two days, a bit like a cricket match. Uh, floodlight okay. failure caused the game to be replayed uh, on Sunday, uh, Paul. Obviously, with uh, some rugby uh, postponements and abandoned matches, uh, don't happen very happen very often in the in the in the summer uh, seasons. Uh, but this one did. Yeah, problems with the floodlights, wasn't it? And mm. um, yeah, I think there used to be. A, Years ago, I can remember um, hearing about a game being abandoned. I think the the rule used to be if it was sixty five minutes, um, the result used to stand, didn't it? So um, I don't know whether those rules have changed or not. But I don't think that game was. I think it was less than that. But I always thought it was at the discretionary of the of the RFL, which I think that's what they said. And to be honest, I think it's probably the, the fair thing to do. Really, I mean. If you're gonna start, I mean, I know Ian Watson was complaining about starting, you know, from minute zero. But I thought if you do that, you'd probably have to keep it the same score, wouldn't you, really? Because Lee were in front of you, so it, it was strange, though, wasn't it? A bit for the supporters rolling up for, for a 32-minute match. But mm. uh, no credit to Lee; they've uh, they've bounced back from some disappointing defeats, haven't they? Uh, since the Wembley Cup final, and they're, they're still up there in the table as well, aren't they? I think they're fourth top, and so that. They've still got a tilt at that grand final, so a good, a good result for them. Disappointed for Huddersfield, though, they've had another disappointing season. Yeah, Settlers beat Wakefield away from home to keep their uh, title charge going. Look at the fixtures for this week. Wakefield are at home to Catalan. Huddersfield are home to Hull Kingston Rovers. Castleford are home to Hull FC. Settlers are home to Lee. Leeds are at home to Wigan. We're at home to Warrington. What fixtures stand out for you there? Well, I think all of them. I think you've got some cracking games there. The Wakefield Catalans game, um, that'll be a really interesting one. That because I might sound daft here, but I can see Wakefield turning Catalans over. Mm. Catalans are a real funny team at the moment. They've just lost two games on the spin, haven't they? And um, you know they were hammered at home to Wigan. 
and they lost to Hull KR away from home this week so they, I don't know whether they'll stay over in this country or whether they'll go back and come back here but Wakefield are a decent side at home you look at some of their results they hammered Warrington there they hammered us they beat Wigan would they be uh, really piling it on for that game now because if they can win that game they back level with Castleford I think the points difference is, is a lot better Castleford's but no, it's a massive game that fit for Wakefield to, to get up for that one against the Dragons who, you know, can be vulnerable on the travel sometimes, can't they? So that'll be a good one. The Lee and St. Helens games are belting match as well. You know, St. Helens, you know, is it, it would it be a fairy tale if, if if Lee were to get to a grand final? A lot of people sort of said, Oh, they won't win any more games or they've won the cup, that's it. But no, I, I think they're still they're still there, aren't they? They're still there they're about. So that'll be a belting game. Wigan and Leeds is always a good game as well. And our game against Warrington, like we said before. Should be, uh, I mean, Kurt Eggerty and Paul Rowley are not quite uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, but this is going to be, it is going to be a shootout, isn't it? This one, you know, it's um, pistols at dawn between these two because Salford need to win. So a win for Salford puts the pressure right back on Warrington and, and it is the last chance saloon really for us. So, um, so, so some belting games again at the weekend. Yeah, many to go. Let's touch on Swinton Lions. They were in action. Uh, went down to defeat. 26 points to 22. They're away at Barra this week. Hopefully get back on to winning ways. Yeah, massive game. I don't think they've got many games left now. They've got two more to play. Two, or th- I think it's two more left. So, yeah, I mean, the bookmakers had um, Swinton on a 20-point start for that game. So, they were back in you know York to, to thump them. So, and it was a really close game. So, they were bitterly disappointed with that now. So, they've got some tough games coming up. I think what they've got to play Whitehaven as well. They might have to win that one to stay up. But it's going to be really nail-biting now the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. We'll be talking about it on the Sports Zone on Salford City Radio every Tuesday and every Wednesday. We're here to cover all different sports in Salford uh, in the world and it's going to be great. Hopefully you'll be able to tune in. Big thanks for joining us on the Sports Zone on Salford City Radio. I'm Rob Parkinson and we'll see you soon for more Salford Sporting Chat on your Salford City Radio.